Thanks for joining us here at Ironbridge Church. We are based out of Chester, Virginia, and our desire is to see everyone in our online and local community experience what it means to know real life and real love. If you have any questions or would like to learn more about us, you can always check us out online at ironbridge.org. And we would love for you to stay connected throughout your week with the Ironbridge Church app. You can download our app for free by searching Ironbridge Church in the App Store or on Google Play. If you would like to access an archive of other messages from Ironbridge Church, where you can search by speaker or topic, be sure to check out ironbridge.org forward slash sermons. And as always, join us on Facebook Live at facebook.com forward slash Ironbridge Church. Now, let's join our guest speaker for today's message. If you want to know some more about men's fraternity, see the other Steve back there. He can clue you in on stuff. So uh, about five weeks ago, I guess, I was uh, asked to come up here. I've got access to the church doors and so forth and came up here on a, a special event on a Friday. And um, uh, we had 35 men and women baptized here. But in the course of that, this guy came up to me when I was at the door over there, and he said, Hey, how you doing? I'm Dean Lee. Well, I knew the name, but I didn't know the person. And uh, in the course of, you know, meeting and talking with him some, he said, uh, hey, if you ever have a group of guys and uh, want me to come talk to them, I'll be glad to do it. Well, here we are. So, uh, um, Vice Admiral William Dean Lee, retired U.S. Coast Guard, was in command of about 21,000 men and women ranging from the Rocky Mountains all the way eastward across the Atlantic Ocean. So a very uh, lustrous career. But on top of that, he's a godly man. So at this time, let's give him a warm welcome. Admiral. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, sir. All right. All right, while you're standing, don't sit down. I want everybody in the back, come on up here. Fill up every one of these seats up around me right here. Scooch in. Make sure you're sitting by somebody. I want you to get real uncomfortable. Okay? (laughs) Come on. Make some new friends. Come on. Scooch up here. Fill in. Fill in. Come on. Come on up front. Sit down when you find your seat. Go ahead. You know, a preacher told me one time that the, you could tell, you know, the level of the sinners by who sat the farthest away from the preacher. All right. All I want is the sinners in the back to join us sinners in the front. All right. All right. Now, look, there was a purpose of that. Tonight, I want to push you men into your zones of discomfort. That was uncomfortable, wasn't it? You picked out your seat. You knew where you wanted to sit. 
You will buy your friends. How dare some speaker come in here and say, move? But you did it. You were obedient. I want you to think tonight about that, obedience. I want you to think tonight about the last words of Jesus Christ before He ascended, after walking on the earth for 40 days, after He was crucified for us. The last command He gave was, go out and tell the world about me. Now, my wife was a little bit irritated when she found out that she couldn't come tonight. You know, what do you mean? It's just men only. I said, yep, sometimes men need to get together and talk about manly things, and we need to hold each other accountable. And I want to dive into a few of those things that those men that preceded me were talking about on those videos tonight. Lord, let this thing work. Lord, let this thing work. <laughs> All right, this thing ain't working. Did it? All right. So let's talk about some statistics that matter. All right. Stats that matter. So please work better than that. I want you all to read that right there, and I want you to think about that. When the mothers of our children come to Christ, they have a great impact. Our mothers, the women, are going to church more frequently than men do. Yet when a father comes to Christ, his family is more likely to join the church by a huge margin from 17% to 93%. That's why men need to get together and talk. There's 113 million men in America over the age of 15. 113 million men over the age of 13, and 69 million of those have made no profession of faith in Christ at all. And here's the statistic that we need to talk about tonight. Only 6 million men in a country of 330 million people are actively involved in discipleship. One out of 18 men who profess to be Christian. And that should make us uncomfortable in here. Are we one of the 18 that actually does that? So I'm going to be asking some of the hard questions tonight, and I want to push you into that zone but let's go back a number of years. How many of you guys ever saw the movie Forrest Gump? All right, you saw it? All right, so finish the sentence for me. Life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Oh, is that so true? And I was sitting back there in the back row where the center sat this morning while Gary was giving his, uh, his, uh, his sermon, and it came to me. I wanted to, I wanted to make this point tonight. You never know what you're going to get. And the scripture that came to mind when he said that was Romans 8, 28, one of my favorites. All things work together for good for those that love Christ, love God, and who are called according to his purpose. Now, most people don't pay much attention to that, but I certainly do because it says all things, not some things, 
not most things, but all things. And that's when it came to me that about six weeks ago, I was in, in Lowe's buying a box of, buying some floor tiles to, to redo my bathroom. And I picked up one of them 80-pound, 70-80-pound boxes of, uh, of 12 by 24 floor tiles. And as I'm trying to put that in the cart, I turn it sideways, and the box gives way, and eight heavy tiles come down right on my leg, slice that thing wide open, they break. It makes a big commotion in Lowe's department store. I'm sliced wide open. I hit the floor. I kind of scream. My wife was with me, and it makes, makes all this noise. And my wife says, and I'm, I'm hyper-focused on my leg, and I'm down there looking at that, but she's looking, and she sees two of them store employees over yonder up at the head of the aisle looking. They had a little vest on, you know. You know they work at Lowe's. But not one of them is coming. Yet this elderly man and his wife who was on the aisle with me, he turns around immediately, and he's over there trying to help me up. My wife's looking at the two guys in the red vest. They're not coming. And they can clearly see that there's a customer down, but they're not coming. Three, four minutes later, here comes a store manager. Now, when the store manager gets there, he does exactly what store managers are supposed to do. He's tending to me. Do you need an ambulance shirt? What do you, and, and I, so it just dawned on me. I'm glad that box of tile fell on my foot. It was a bad thing. It hurt bad. In fact, I ended up having to visit an emergency room in Los Angeles two weeks later while I was on a business trip to get that thing tended to because it got infected. I'm glad that tile cut my leg because it gave me the story tonight. How many of us when you turn that around, when it comes to discipling the people that need help, people that are lost are standing at the head of the aisle waiting for the preacher to come take care of them. Waiting for the preacher to come. Now, God made preachers, but he didn't make enough of them to tend to all the lost and hurt people who are out in our communities. Now, I spent 36 years in the search and rescue business, not this kind of search and rescue, and I mean the, the real maritime stuff. But I intend to spend the rest of my years, however many the Lord is willing to give me, in the search and rescue business. So let's talk about that theme tonight. First off, I want you to know right up front, I believe that Jesus Christ is who he says he was that he did what the Bible said he did, and that the Bible is the holy, inspired Word of God Almighty. Now, I did a bad thing. I walked up here and I left my Bible back here in the back row where the sinners sit. Let me grab it. <clears throat> All right. Running back up here. So before I get into any of this stuff, let me give you a little bit of background on me. Let me tell you, I, I was not a model Christian when I was a young man. 
My mother and father brought me to church, made me go to church. It was a little primitive Baptist church here in Chesterfield County where they didn't believe in musical instruments and all of that. And by the time the two-and-a-half-hour sermons were over and I was old enough to say, I'm not going to church anymore, I stopped going. And then I go into college. And, of course, you know what happens in college. They suck all the faith out of you that your parents ever planted into you. And then all of a sudden you're young and you fall in love and you start having children. Here's one of them right here. And life's so good you don't need God. And I was in that category. And I went along swimmingly well until I was getting my 30s. And then I, like the Lord threw a storm at me. And boy, he gave me not just a storm. He gave me a nine-year storm. And I finally woke up. And I got baptized at the ripe old age of 41 years old. I was a late bloomer. But it don't matter when you bloom as long as you get it and you accept it before you take your last breath. And that's the point that we need to be telling those around us. Now, so when I was in, after I got saved, I was a mid-grade officer. And so then I started talking about this Jesus guy to people. And, you know, you're not supposed to do that in the federal government. And, I mean, I was warned about it multiple times. Hey, you can't do that. Yep, yeah, okay, got it. Hey, man, you know Jesus? You know. No, I learned how to navigate through that minefield of political correctness. But I love poking the bear. And so one of the things that, um, that used to really – how many of you guys know what our national motto is? You know, if you went out on any college campus, just pick a good liberal college campus, say like Berkeley or somewhere, and you started randomly asking people, those students, what the national motto was when they're coming out of classes, you'd get a litany of answers. You know, like, oh, uh, just do it. Um, takes one to know one. Eat more chicken. I mean, they come up with a litany of things, but very few of them would actually know that our national motto is, in God we trust. In God we trust. Now you think about it now, because of weak men, our country has devolved into a state where now our own national motto has become politically incorrect. And if you don't believe that, I want you, any teachers in here? Do we have any teachers? I want you to imagine any high school principal getting on the intercom one morning before classes start, and he just gets up and announces to the whole school, all right, kids, listen up. Today, we're going to trust God. You got that? We're going to trust in God today. Go home, tell your parents. I'm going to tell you the next day, depending on what city you're in, your phone's probably going to light up. How dare you? What do you mean bringing that God thing into my child? Oh, it's just our national motto. Oh, I love the national motto. So let me uh, talk about the liberty that you have to talk about God in your place of work. I used to tell every one of my young officers, memorize the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution because it states, Congress shall enact no law respecting 
the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free practice or exercise thereof. I want you to think about that. And the next time somebody tells you you can't talk about it, you just whip out your copy of the First Amendment. Now, how many of you guys have been to Washington, D.C., ever climbed up in the Washington Monument? Monument? Been there? Seen it? Did you know that the Washington Monument is the tallest structure in, the, in Washington? And by law, no other building can be built taller than the Washington Monument. What few people don't know, though, is it's stamped on top of that monument in a little metal cap that kind of protects the point that nobody can see because it's above where the spectators can go. Right on the very tip top of that is an aluminum cap placed there when they finished it in the 1800s that has two words on it. Laus Deo. Praise be to God. Facing east where the sun rises. Now I want you to think about that. Praise be to God. Now one of these days some group is going to put up a stink, and they're going to try to demand that somebody, you know, that we take that down. And that's where men like you and me need to go up there and march in Washington. Now, I can't wait for that day. But I love that word. I love that, that, that Laius Dale so much that I, I went and I named my boat Laius Dale when I was on active duty. Now, I like to fish. And so... When I was in command of forces down in North Carolina where I did most of my fishing, every Saturday morning, sometimes Sundays, sometimes Wednesdays and Thursdays, if the fish were running, I'd get underway on my boat, and I'd always do a radio check. And it would sound something like this. You know, Coast Guard Sector, North Carolina, Coast Guard Sector, North Carolina, this is Laus Dale, Laus Dale, Channel 1-6, over. And the watchstander who worked for me, would come back on the radio frequency owned by the United States federal government. He would go, Laus Deo, Laus Deo, this is Sector North Carolina. How can I help you? I go, just doing a radio check. This is Laus Deo out. Laus Deo, Laus Deo, this is Sector North Carolina out. I just had the United States government say praise God five times in a row yeah. because I could. Well, the Coast Guard, we kind of, we're kind of big on this search and rescue thing. We, we like to pride ourselves on, on going out and saving people, but and we, every search and rescue case number is actually, or case has a number assigned to it. Oh, they're up in the hundreds of thousands now, but let's talk about SAR, S-A-R stands for search and rescue, SAR case number one. And they describe it in the book of Matthew chapter 14. And so, Jesus is now well into his ministry, all right? He's gotten quite a lot of attention. And now people from all the local towns are following him around because he's doing these things that we're still reading about. He's healing people. He's making the blind see. He's doing this and that and the other. So naturally, people want to get a dose of that. Well, Jesus has just found out that John the Baptist has been beheaded. And so he, he takes that information in and he decides, I 
want to go find a place of solitude where I can pray and be alone. So what does he do? He gets in a boat with the disciples, his crew, and they're sailing along. Now, the Bible doesn't say this. It doesn't describe it in detail, but he must have been sailing real slow because the people, the crowds that had come to see him were following him on foot, on land. So they're probably walking down the beach while they're slowly, and he sees them and he comes ashore. He has compassion on them. And so he spends the day talking to him and preaching and healing and doing miracles. And then that afternoon, the disciples come up to him and they say, Boss, you got to send these people home. They've got to go to the local village, get something. He said, No, you feed them. What do you mean? We ain't got enough food to feed them. He said, You feed them. And then you know the story. With a couple of fish. Five loaves of bread. They feed 5,000 men, which also included women and children that were with them. And then they had 12 baskets left over. Well, you can imagine a man who's expended that much energy that day. He's already gotten this bad news that John the Baptist is beheaded and dead. Now he wants some solitude. So he tells his crew, y'all get in a boat going to the other side. Well, it doesn't say what they said. I mean, Peter, Peter's a man. He was a fisherman. He was a boatman. You, you would think it, somebody, and they probably did, but it doesn't say, but somebody probably turned to him and said, what do you mean? How are you going to get over there? But the fact of the matter is they were obedient. They got underway and left Jesus behind. So he goes up and he, he's having his communion with God. He's having his relationship with God, the Father, whom he is. And in verse 24, it says, Meanwhile, the disciples were in trouble far away from land, for a strong wind had risen, and they were fighting heavy waves. About 3 o'clock in the morning, Jesus came towards them, walking on water. When the disciples saw him walking on the water, they were terrified. In their fear, they cried out, it's a ghost. But Jesus spoke to them at once. He said, don't be afraid. Take courage. I am here. Then Peter called to him. Oh, I love Peter. Peter called him. He said, Lord, if it's really you, tell me to come to you walking on the water. Oh, come on. Come on. And you know what happens. Peter steps over the side of the boat, and he walked on the water towards Jesus. But when he saw the strong wind and the waves, he was terrified, and he began to sink. Save me, Lord, he shouted. And Jesus immediately reached out and grabbed him. Oh, ye of little faith, why did you doubt me? Why did you doubt me? I've often wondered about this sea store, this rescue. I've often wondered why it would did Jesus, if he is in fact God and God is sovereign and he knows all things, why would he purposely send his own crew into a storm? He had to know the storm was coming. 
Now, all three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and John, Luke doesn't tell this story, but those three Gospels talk about this. But the takeaway from it is that Jesus is going to send all of us from time to time in a storm, into a storm. And there's two kinds of storms. There's storms of correction, and then there's storms of perfection. Now I'll leave it to you to decide which one of those storms he sent his crew into. But the Bible tells us that when this happened, when this miracle happened, they knew without a doubt. When that man walked on water and calmed the seas, he is, in fact, who he said he was. So the point here is, every once in a while, we, as humans, as pure, mere sinners, when life is going too good for us to need God, we need to pray for some storms. Because it sometimes will break us through the barriers. Now, when I was a young officer in the Coast Guard, we used to have to practice to go into the storms, the real storms, the big waves. And we had this place out in Cape Disappointment, out where the Columbia River empties into the Pacific Ocean, where you have the largest consistent surf, as I understand it, in the world. That's where we go to train. We want the biggest, baddest waves that we get. I remember the first time when I was in that school, I'm out there and I'm looking at a wall of water 20 feet high coming at me. It is curling. And I'm thinking, oh, Lord, what did I get myself into? And that thing rears up and that boat starts pitching. All of a sudden, that thing breaks over you. And you find yourself enveloped. In water you can't see six inches from you, you're thinking, Lord, save me. And then all of a sudden, breaking out on the other side, that thing will come up and it'll fall on the backside of that wave and you can keep on going. That's called crossing the bar. And once you get across the bar where the big waves are, they calm down and you can go rescue those people who you are trained to go rescue. And my point in this is that there's barriers to each and every rescue effort. Sometimes those barriers are waves. Sometimes those barriers are policy. But more often than not, those barriers are fear. Now, they sent us into them storms on that boat so that we would get accustomed to that and then become less fearful. So it grew from fear, in my case and the case of the men who I served with, to respect. But then you build confidence. I can do this. I can go into my zone of discomfort. So my message today comes from Luke 15, 4, and you can read it. But what man are you if you have a hundred sheep and you lose one dozen, leave the 99 and go seek that one which is lost? Now, oh, this thing is driving me nuts. In my world, some of them 
when we launched after them. We found them in time. That's good news. Those are the kind of cases that you want. Some of them we found too late, and the hardest thing that I ever had to do as a commanding officer was to deliver the next of kin notifications to the grieving families, the mothers, the fathers, the widows. And then there's that last con. We call them the never founds. Some of them we just searched and searched and searched for, but we never found them. Those were the hardest ones. They were way harder than finding the ones that were already deceased because the family did not have closure. And they still, in their mind's eye, think they're out there treading water and they're swimming. They're the most difficult next-to-kin notifications I ever made. And so it begs the question, what is lost? I mean, there's different kinds of lost. There's those kinds of lost where you don't know where you are. There's those kinds of lost that... Uh, you don't know where you're going. And then there's that worst kind of loss. There's those people that think they know where they are and where they are going. You've had those conversations with people. I'm sure everybody in this room has had a conversation at some point in time or another with somebody that does not know Christ. Good people, your neighbors, your coworkers who fall in that category with those millions of other people around them that think they're going to heaven because they're basically good people. And it's because they're prescribing to the gospel that uh, good people, subject matter experts like, uh, oh, like here you go, world-recognized experts, one of the biggest mistakes that we can ever make. is to believe that there's only one way to live, that there are many, many paths to what we call God. And that came from the great religious philosopher, Oprah Winfrey. This is true. Now, Oprah professes to be a Christian, yet that is her doctrine as passed down to many, many people who were her viewers. Oprah and everybody that subscribes to that worldview are in the lost category. And here's the real truth that comes to us in the Bible. Jesus tells us, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And that's it. But by me. How often do we take the time to have that kind of conversation? Now, I suspect that there are men in here who have been members of very different denominations. I actually went out and I tried to find a, a little symbol for every single denomination that there is, and there they are, and I couldn't for the life of me tell you which ones belong to which denominations except for three or four. But the point is this, every single one of them, if they're Christian-based church denominations, has at the center of it, Christ, we hope, at the very center of it. And they all have their different cultures. 
yeah, some might believe this doctrine or that doctrine. Some of them might believe that you can have musical instruments. Some of them may not. It doesn't matter. But they're worshiping the God that we worship. Well, the same thing holds true for service cultures. How many veterans do we have in the room? Raise your hands. All right. Thank you for your service. You guys remember whatever service you were in that uh, every service had its own unique kind of culture. All right. And if anybody asked me to describe, you know, what's the, what's the difference between the Coast Guard and, say, the Marine Corps, I can tell you with great specificity the difference in my opinion. Because it occurred one day at a stoplight in Moorhead City, North Carolina, where I used to live. Now, in Moorhead City, North Carolina, you, are, you can't swing a dead cat without hitting a Marine. I mean, we got Camp Lejeune down the road one way. On the other side, we got Marine Corps Air Station Cherry Point on the other side. And then we got a large Coast Guard contingent there, too. Well, I'm sitting in the left-hand turn lane, one of them two-turn lane thingies, and there's two Ford F-150 pickup trucks just ahead of me. One of them has got in his rearview window U.S. Coast Guard. Semper Paratus, always ready. You sink them, we save them. And then next to him, in a bigger pickup truck, with a little bit louder muffler on it was Semper Fidelis, Semper Fi, United States Marine Corps. And his bumper sticker read, Marine Sniper. You can run, but you just die tired. <laughs> now that there is the difference between the service cultures. So we all got them. So to have a little fun with that, everybody, every service had, has a great time poking fun at the other ones. The Marines poke fun at the Air Force, all right? And the Air Force makes fun of the Army, all right? And the Navy makes fun of the Coast Guard. And, of course, then the Coast Guard makes fun of the Navy. I don't know what genius photoshopped that Coast Guard cutter in the front position there. But, but we all do it. So What? The point in all this is this. When an adversary to our country comes and attacks us, no matter which service they go after, there's going to be a price to pay when the whole team comes together to go after them. And so that is the point tonight. And I want to tell you a couple of sea stories and one land story. One of my favorite Search and rescue stories was a land story that happened during the Vietnam era. That young captain, his Air Force pilot, F-4 Phantom pilot, his name's Roger Locker. He was on his third tour in Vietnam. He was on his 407th bombing mission over Hanoi. On the 10th of May, 1972, his, his jet got shot down, and he spent 22 days behind enemy lines further north than any U.S. serviceman had ever been shot down before. Living in the jungle, surviving on roots and berries and whatever else he could forage up, trying to stay hidden from the local villagers who were going and coming. When he got shot down, everybody knows when a plane goes down. And every one of those pilots has a radio with lots of batteries attached to him in their survival vest. But Roger knew that his predicament was very precarious because the North Vietnamese had radio direction finding equipment. And if he keyed up on that radio, 
and there wasn't a U.S. aircraft over a site, it would go into dead land. Nobody's going to hear it. But the North Vietnamese could triangulate on his position and go find him. And he did not want to give away that he had survived that crash. So 22 days, he's living in the jungle until finally on day 22, he sees a U.S. aircraft on another bombing mission overhead. He keys up his mic and he calls U.S. aircraft, U.S. aircraft 22, two miles north of Hanoi. This is Oyster 1 Bravo, his call sign. They establish communications, Oyster 1 Bravo, authenticate. They have their protocol. They had already given up on searching for Roger. They thought he was dead. There was no longer any searching going on for him. He says, hey, you reckon you guys could come fetch me? You betcha. Well, the next day, they launched an all-out SAR mission with their combat rescue team, and they went in, and they took heavy fire. Now, they knew those guys were coming in there to rescue somebody, and so now they knew that Roger was, was in the area. They knew an airman was down, and so now they're starting to close in. There was so much anti-aircraft fire, they couldn't get in there, and they had to abort the mission, and they went back. And they were forlorn because they went. They tried to save their target. No joy. Well, that night, something happened the next day that had never been done before. General Vogt, who was the commander in charge of all air operations in Vietnam, decided that he was going to stop the war the next day. And he devoted every available aircraft to rescuing Roger Locker. There were no bombing runs that day. Let's go get Roger Locker. And when they came in for round two, they came in full bore. They had so much suppressive fire, they laid it flat, and they dropped down with one of those jolly green giants into that jungle canopy, and they picked up Roger Locker, and they flew him back to safety. General Vogt flew to the base to greet him. And that night after they cleaned up Roger, and they had told everybody, if you want to see Roger and shake his hand, you be at the club at 1,800 hours. 1,800. After Roger's been cleaned up and shaven, got on a fresh uniform, he walks into the club, and every man and woman on that base who was not on duty was in there. And they started clapping, and they applauded for 20 solid Who wouldn't leave the 99 and go find the one who is lost? I want you to think about what kind of applause we get in heaven when one of us takes the time to have the conversation with a lost coworker or neighbor. I teach a course. They threw everything they had at it, and they saved their man. Well, I teach a course called Extreme SAR for the National Search and Rescue School in Yorktown, Virginia, where we train people from all over the world in the art and the skills of search and rescue planning. 
And when I talk about extreme sorrow, I talk about that stuff, the outlying stuff, that stuff that's way out on the outer edge, extraordinarily dangerous and high risk. And one of my favorite stories is a story that occurred on my watch back in 2012. We had two fishing boats that left port out of uh, Manasquan in New Jersey. And this was a family-owned business, and they had two different boats. Two brothers operated these boats. And so they left out on a cold January afternoon, and they were going to steam all night so they could get to their fishing grounds and start fishing at sunup sun up the next day. And what happens normally when these, profession, when these uh, commercial fishermen get underway, one of the first mates will take the first watch, and the master will go down, and he'll get some shut-eye, and they'll just stand watches until they get out there. Well, the master decided he'll take the mid-watch. So he let his deckhand drive the ship for the first four hours. Meanwhile, he goes down in the forward berthing compartment. Well, somewhere about 11, 11 p.m., an hour before they're supposed to change the watch, the guy caught in the boat goes down below to make himself a sandwich and get a cup of coffee. And while he's down there, unbeknownst to him, there was an inbound commercial freighter going into the port of Philadelphia that runs right over their boat. The guy on the commercial boat was not paying any attention to his radar. The guy on the fishing boat wasn't paying any attention to him, and it happened. But nobody felt it on the ship. Those big ships can run over a boat like that, and nobody will know sometimes. Meanwhile, they have these little distress beacons. Think prayer. Little distress beacons on these commercial boats that pop up to the surface, and they immediately start broadcasting a distress signal, and it goes directly to my command center. I mean, and this takes place within 60 seconds, and it tells me three things. There's a boat in distress, exactly where it is, and the name of the boat. And we immediately start launching boats and aircraft. Launch an 865, which is a Dolphin helicopter out of Atlantic City, New Jersey, and on board was a 36-year-old rescue swimmer named Jake Stahl. That's him right there. Now, Jake Stahl was at the top of his trade. If they were making the movie The Guardian today, that some of you might have seen, Jake Stahl would have been the one that Central Casting called down to go play the part that Kevin Costner played. He had had a litany of high-risk rescues under his belt. Nobody else at the command had the experience that he did. He happened to be on watch this very night. They arrive on scene simultaneously with our boat and simultaneously with the sister boat because they had heard the distress calls going out. When we have a case, we make an urgent marine radio broadcast to everybody in the area. There's a boat in distress in this area. Go render since they turned around. And they all show up almost the same time, and there's an overturned boat. Jake Stahl gets down in the water. They rescue the guy who was making the cup of coffee. He gets out of the boat. Trapped underneath the hull was the master of the vessel, the brother of the other man who just drove up. And this scene 
is something out of Hollywood. It is black and night. There's a whirlwind going on underneath this helicopter as it whips up 120 mile an hour wind. It's blowing sea foam everywhere. There's lights down there and this noise is indescribable. And the men on this boat are going, get down there, get down there, save my brother. Jake, the rescue swimmer, does not have scuba gear. He starts tapping on that hull, and that man downstairs, is, down below there, is screaming bloody murder. There's one problem. There's a huge barrier here. Not just one barrier, two huge barriers. Number one, Jake is separated by about an eight-inch thick hull from the man he wants to rescue. And number two, there is a strict policy that says, thou shalt not swim underneath a capsized boat. Only trained scuba divers do that. Jake knew the policy. But Jake also knew that he was the only human being on the planet right then who had the opportunity, who had any chance at all of saving that man trapped underneath that hull. So Jake calls up to the aircraft commander, who is the, really the guy in, on scene. He's an officer. Jake is an enlisted petty officer. He calls up and he says, send me down two Heeds bottles, helicopter extraction devices. They're little bitty scuba tanks with two to three minutes of air in them the air crew have just to give them enough air to get out from underneath an overturned aircraft if they should go down in the water. No more than that. The aircraft commander hears this, and he goes, I know the policy says he can't do that. He knew the policy too, but he also knew that Jake was going under that boat with or without his permission, and he stood a better chance with those bottles than without them. So the aircraft commander put his own career on the line and perhaps Jake's life on the line and lowered those bottles. And Jake takes one of them bottles, he puts it in his mouth, he stuffs the other one in his vest, and he goes underneath that black boat in a boat he's never been in before in his life. Everything's upside down. He starts swimming back through the cabin, trying to make his way to the forward berthing compartment. And there's seat cushions and ice chest and plastic cups and everything you can imagine that would be inside the galley of a boat floating around. It's like pea soup in there. And he gets his swim fin hung up on a door jam. And he has to free himself and he drops his bottle in the process. And he fights his way back out and he makes it to the surface just in time to catch some lung full of air and vomit a quart of seawater. Meanwhile, the master is in that boat screaming bloody murder. The brother on the other boat is screaming bloody murder. Every other word is an expletive. Get in there and save my brother. Jake gets his wits about him. He takes his only remaining bottle. He dives underneath that boat. He works his way through that pea soup. He finds his way up to that forward door. It's dark. He reaches in there. He finds an arm. 
he grabs the arm and he starts to swim out and later at our debriefing he tells me he says sir when I got to him I knew he was already dead but I had to come out with him he starts working his way out of there and then he gets tangled up again He's carrying a dead man, and now he's got a choice. He needs a free hand. He's got a choice to free himself, drop the dead man, or drop the bottle of air. 99 out of 100 men would have dropped the dead man. Jake dropped the bottle of air and worked his way out and reached the surface with his target in hand. We flew him to the local hospital, and they pronounced him dead on arrival. And so you're all probably wondering, why would you tell us that story? That wasn't a success. We'll tell you that story because it is right in line with the gospel. God doesn't expect us to save them all. He just expects us to try, and He directs the rest of us. And we can't go home forlorn because we've brought up the gospel of Jesus with somebody who don't want to believe. You walk away feeling like a failure. You plant the seed. He'll grow the rest. So my point here tonight for the men in this audience is this. Every church, whatever church you go to, almost every one of them has a mission affiliation. And people will donate hard-earned money to send people to Haiti, to Bangladesh, to Africa, to spread the gospel, to help. And that is all good. And I know that God is pleased with those efforts. But I think the mission that He wants us to start focusing on is focusing on those lost who are in plain sight of all of us every day when we go to school and we go to work. Those lost people that you're afraid to talk to because you're afraid of offending them. If we focus more on those people by using the tools he gives us, which are the storms. We can do a lot towards reaching those 69 million people out there who the statistics say are still struggling with their faith. I was born and raised in Chesterfield County. I went to Meadowbrook High School. Now, some of you might remember back in the 1970s, there was a football coach named Jim Rowe. Jim Rowe was an icon. He was the first real leader that I ever met in my life. We feared him. We respected him. We'd do anything for Jim Rowe. Well, I'll never forget, every once in a while, we'd be out there on the practice field or sometimes on Friday night games, and, and the whistle's blowing, and here comes Jim Rowe running out. He's called a timeout, and he comes running out there on the field, and he'll grab some halfback by the face mask and get down in his face, and he'll go, Blankety-blank, when you see a hole, run through it. 
Linemen be opening up these big giant holes. Halfback be running right down the line of scrimmage while everybody's cheering, get tackled before he gains one inch. When you see a hole run through it, I never forgot that. Those holes of opportunity open up for us in life if we are going to be true disciples when you see people in storms. There's a lot of people that you can't go to on any given day and just say, hey, you know Jesus, you got Jesus yet? You're going to get the stiff arm. We have to be strategic about it. And you wait for that storm to hit them. And when that storm hits them, you ease right in there. Tell them your storm story. But don't ever miss those opportunities. Are you willing to go there? Or is the parting question? Now, I'm almost finished here. Give me a few more minutes. When I retired from active duty, I had, um, I had these plans. You know, I was going to spend a third of my life fishing. I was going to spend a third of my life um, teaching, doing public speaking. I was going to spend a third of my life doing some kind of community service. I had in mind maybe cutting grass at the church or something, not anything hard. <laughs> I lived in North Carolina. I had a little place up here in Virginia on Chesapeake Bay, but I didn't live anywhere close to Richmond. But my boy here had gotten a job working with uh, Sheriff Leonard over there at Chesterfield County. Deputy Sheriff, he's the sheriff. And one day, Sheriff Leonard comes over and has a beer with my boy and I, one of the local pubs. Sheriff Leonard had been trying to get me to go to his jail for about eight, nine months. He kept saying, Dean, next time you come to Richmond, I want you to go to jail with me. And I do that thing that most of us do, truth be known, when somebody asks to do something we don't want to do. I'd, I'd say, yeah, I'll do that one of these days. I'll do that. I'd always find an excuse not to go to the jail. Well, on one particular day, he's over there having a beer with us. And he looks at me, and he's already asked me a series of strategic questions and ascertained I didn't have nothing else to do the rest of the afternoon. <laughs> he goes, what's your excuse for not going to jail today? I look down, turn red in the face, and I go, I ain't got one. The truth is, I didn't want to go to his jail. I had never been in a jail before. I had spent 36 years in an organization that chased down drug traffickers, put handcuffs on them, and sent them to jail. And he wants me to not just go to his jail, he wants me to go to a special pod in his jail which has nothing in it but drug addicts. Most of them heroin addicts. In my view at that time of everybody who was on drugs was they got their just desserts. You got what you deserve messing around with that toxic stuff. That afternoon I walk into that jailhouse and I, I go through the seven layers of security that they have and I'm being escorted by the sheriff and we, all, we open up, we go to, through the last door and I find myself in a pod with 44 men in a circle. 
sitting in little green plastic chairs. And every single one of them looked like they'd kill you in a heartbeat. They looked like hell's angels and outlaw bikers and everything from both ends of the spectrum. And then he says, I said, what do you want me to do? He says, talk to him. Do your thing. And I walk out there in the middle of that pod, and I'm nervous. I can be. And the only thing I know to do is be honest with him. Guys, I'm nervous. I've never been in jail before. I don't know a thing about what it's like to be a drug addict or to be in jail. Can you talk to me? And over the course of the next 45 or 50 minutes, those men opened up to me, and they hooked my heart. And I started going to that jail every week, driving all the way from North Carolina to do my discipleship with them. And, oh, I met some very interesting people in there, people like Jeremiah Duty. Jeremiah is just one of many hundreds like him. But there was something about Jeremiah that, that compelled me one afternoon, the second session I was in there with him to get his story. And I pulled Jeremiah aside, and he was 34 years at old at the time. And I found out that he had been in prison, one jail or another or prison, for 14 and a half years of his life at the age of 34. He was all tattooed up, down to both arms, on his face, on his head, and on his knuckles, said it all right there, pure hate. I got to talking to Jeremiah, and I found out on the second visit to him that Jeremiah's daddy was my boyhood friend that grew up across the street, two louvers down from me in Belmont Acres. His dad is no longer alive. But Jeremiah was. And so we would talk, and I would continue to come back in there, and Jeremiah got released from prison, from jail, on February 28, 2018, after having been talked to by a litany of people, but one particular man had an impact on his life who took the time to bring him a Bible, and it wasn't me. But I had the privilege of driving to Richmond on April 7th after his relief and watching that man get baptized and turn his life over to Jesus Christ. And that man and still stays in contact with me. We talk sporadically from time to time. And every time we hang up the phone, he says, I love you, man. I love you, man. From pure hate to I love you, man. It's my honor to have Jeremiah Duty in the audience tonight, standing right here. Stand up, Jeremiah. This is what the gospel of Jesus Christ does when men take the time to do it. All right, I'm almost done. That's Pastor Jeremy Ford. Jeremy Ford spent 13 and a half years in the Arizona State Penitentiary. Now he's a pastor in Amelia. 
and he and I have teamed up together, and over the course of the last two years, we have seen a harvest like you have never seen before. We continue to have baptisms by bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ inside the jail. We'll bus them out to whatever church we can find, pull them right into the service, and at the end, in their orange jumpsuits, march them up to the baptismal pool and watch people's lives get turned over because people are willing to go into the zones of discomfort. We just had one, and the reason I'm in here tonight is because we had a batch of them go, I think it was 37, get baptized right over there in that tank and got their picture taken right under that, and that's how I met Gary and Steve Whitlock. Guys, are you willing to throw the life ring? Jesus Christ was pretty simple when he gave us our assignment. He didn't say, just believe in me and you will get through that narrow gate. He also said, when you believe in me, go into your zones of discomfort. Go have a conversation with somebody that you have been afraid to talk to, that it just doesn't seem like the thing I want to do. And you will be surprised at the joy that you will get out of those encounters. I have learned more about the human condition in the last three years by going to jail than I learned in the first 62 years of my life as a career military officer. And the number one thing I learned, do not judge people by the way they look or their lot in life. I have learned that not all of us won the parent lottery. That many of them poor souls that are parked behind them bars in those prisons didn't have the privilege of having two parents. Some of them didn't even have one parent. They didn't have the privilege of being held accountable or being taught right or wrong. Some of them were led to drug use by their own parents when they were toddlers just to keep them quiet. And they were drug addicts by the time they were teenagers. They had no chance. All they need is hope and love. So I'll leave you with this. We're men. The Bible tells us that we have a higher duty as men. We are supposed to be the leaders in our households. Are we? Everything in life rises and falls on leadership. Leadership rises and falls on integrity. And the seeds of integrity are planted and watered and nourished by fathers in their own household. God bless all of you. Go save some lost. Thank you.
As a church, we consider it an honor to play a small part in your journey of discovering real life and real love. And no matter where you are on your journey, we want to be there to help you take the next step. To find out what your next steps could be in your relationship with Christ, all you have to do is go to ironbridge.org forward slash next.